All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we spend our time in the Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance on our study. Father, as we study Your Word, God the Holy Spirit is the one who opens up the eyes of our soul to help us to understand Your Word, to understand how we are to apply it in our lives. And it is through God the Holy Spirit that your word is stored in our soul that it might be brought back to our consciousness in times of application. Father, often as we study your word, your word challenges our very core beliefs because often they are formed in the matrix of a fallen world and a corrupt society, and they are in opposition to the truth of your word. But it is, as the scripture says, it is in your light that we see light. And it is through God the Holy Spirit that our thinking is transformed, that we avoid being conformed or pressed into the mold of the world and its thinking, and we are uh, transformed so that our thinking reflects your thinking, your revelation. And it is only through the fear of you and through the knowledge of your word that we are able to find stability and happiness and joy in this life. And we have a certainty of our expectation, our hope of eternal life because of Christ's death on the cross for our sins. Now, Father, challenge us as we study today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 19, continuing the study which we began last week, which is Jesus' teaching on marriage. It's marriage, uppercase, divorce, in lowercase. So many people go to these passages, as I pointed out last week, and their focus is sort of, well, what, what does God allow in terms of being able to get out of my marriage? And they look at it as this is Jesus' teaching on divorce when the real emphasis here is on marriage. And what Jesus said is hard for a lot of people to handle And it was for the disciples because, as we'll see as we get there today, when Jesus finished teaching, he said, uh, the disciples said to him in verse 10, if this is the case, if this is what the scriptures really teach, then it's better not to, not to marry. The standard is high and Jesus is reinforcing God's original intent and purpose for marriage. Granted, there are exceptions when things go really bad that uh, come into play and there are legitimate reasons for divorce. But what Jesus is really saying here, to, to just summarize it, is that even if there may be an exception at play in a situation, that doesn't mean that you should necessarily take advantage of that situation unless it is just absolutely certain that there's no hope 
of uh, redeeming that relationship and resolving the differences in that in that marriage. And so as we come to this study, I want to remind you again what I said at the beginning last week, that this isn't about uh, second-guessing past decisions. It's not about judging any kind of wrong decision. We're all sinners. Everybody's failed at one point or another in different areas. This is really about understanding what the Scripture says so that as we go forward in our life from this point on, no matter what past decisions may have been made, we can focus on what the Lord has said And as we go through life, we may have opportunities to advise, counsel, encourage other believers, whether they're family members, whether they are uh, friends, associates, who are struggling in the area of their own marriage. Marriage like and divorce, like any other topic in Scripture, is always governed by grace. Where we fail, it's governed by grace and forgiveness and restoration because God is the God who is involved in turning that which is dead into that which is alive. And there are numerous stories, numerous uh, uh, situations where it's in marriages where it just seemed absolutely hopeless where one or the other of the uh, people involved in the marriage have committed all kinds of egregious sins and breaches of the marriage covenant, but yet because of the ultimate devotion to God and the Scripture, they have subordinated themselves to the truth of God's Word, and though it was not easy, though it took time, uh, they, God, the God of grace allowed these people to uh, step beyond what mistakes and failures they've had, and God has turned their marriages into uh, genuine trophies of his grace and testimonies of how God can uh, bring light into darkness. And some of you know some of those stories from people that we all know, Uh, Others of you do not, but it is a great testimony when that happens. As I pointed out last week, though, there are things that we always have to be aware of. One of those is that it takes two people to make a marriage work, and it only takes one person to destroy the marriage. And the second thing that is important to understand is that the person we are married to although some people think there might be a couple of exceptions in the congregation, the people that we are married to have dirty, rotten, corrupt sin natures. Don't be looking around at your spouse or pointing any fingers right now, but but every one of us does. And when we are living in the energy of our flesh and the power of the sin nature, we are capable of some of the most horrendous, egregious, horrific acts, but God meets us where we are, and we can have forgiveness and cleansing, and we can move forward, and sometimes we feel like it's a whole lot easier for God to forgive us than for our spouse to forgive us, and yet one thing I want to begin with and end with as we uh, will probably finish this section today is the context of this particular uh, teaching of Jesus, as Matthew puts it in into this uh, into a section that has immediately been preceded.
by a chapter emphasizing the importance of personal forgiveness of those who sin against us. And let me remind you, in at the end of chapter 18, Peter comes to the Lord and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter, the subtext there is Jesus said, do I really have to forgive him? But Peter knows that the Lord's going to say yes, and so Peter then says up to seven times. See, Peter thinks he's being generous here. Uh, Forgive him seven times, but the Lord comes back and says, no, no, you forgive him 70 times seven. And that's basically an idiom for you don't stop forgiving them. Now, there are situations that occur Often the question comes to, comes to me when that happens in certain circumstances where there's abuse, whether it's physical or emotional, where there is a person who continuously takes advantage in some way or another. And, and we get the idea that forgiveness means that I don't protect myself against the fact that this person uh, may be committing a type of sin that seriously takes advantage of me and may bring me harm. It is one thing to forgive somebody. It's another thing to be stupid and irrational and put yourself in harm's way. One question that is not addressed in the divorce passages in Scripture, uh, and I do not think that the divorce passages in Scripture are necessarily exhaustive, is what do you do in situations where you're married to someone and that person is, for example, uh, they've got a gambling problem and they may gamble away all of the money, all of the resources, the house and everything. What do you do? Do you just let them do it? Uh, forgiveness doesn't mean that you put yourself in that kind of harm's way. Uh, you may have to separate for a while. You may have to do something to create a firewall in terms of finances. Uh, the other situations involving emotional abuse or physical abuse fall into that same category. That's criminal uh, in those situations, and God is not saying that you should put yourself in harm's way where your life or your health is threatened by somebody else. And so there may be intermediate means that have to be taken in order to protect oneself, and each case is different. But God is not expecting anyone. Forgiveness doesn't mean putting yourself in harm's way and just letting yourself be turned into a punching bag or being abused in terms of having your finances destroyed or anything like that. Forgiveness is a mental attitude whereby we are not holding the sin against the other person. We have forgiven them. The slate's wiped clean. But that doesn't mean that there aren't certain consequences that ought to follow uh, as well. We think of the situation in the Old Testament where David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he went on to conspire uh, to have uh, her husband Uriah put into a position where he his life would be taken in a battle, so he conspired to commit murder. God forgave David when he confessed the sin, but there were still consequences to the sin. In our culture, so many people confuse forgiveness with the absolution of consequences. Sometimes God, when he forgives us of a sin, 
removes the consequences. Sometimes he leaves the consequences in place, and sometimes he doubles down on the consequences in order to teach us a lesson. Forgiveness does not absolve a person of consequences. Another example, if someone commits murder and they are taken to court for their criminal action and they are given the death penalty, even if they're a believer, even if they become a believer, then the penalty is in place. Forgiveness, though, is just as real even though that penalty stays in place. Americans have a great difficulty understanding the, the concept that forgiveness doesn't mean the removal of consequences. They think that forgiveness means, you know, ali ali oxen free, everything's okay, and we can just go forward. And that is not uh, the biblical teaching on, on forgiveness. It means that the decks are cleared and our relationship with God is no longer hindered by that sin, but it doesn't mean we're automatically cleared of all of all consequences. So just a reminder that as we look at this, we're looking at what we should do as we go forward in our life and understanding what the Scripture teaches. Now here's the situation. Jesus has come down from Galilee down towards uh, Jerusalem. He's on. He's over by the Jordan, and the Pharisees decide to trap him. And in uh, verse 3, uh, we see the Pharisees come to him in order to test him, a, a participle of purpose there, and say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? They're asking a specific question, but it's a loaded question because there's a controversy among the Pharisees as to whether we're going to have tight restrictions on divorce or loose restrictions on divorce. And it comes down to a a uh, debate between two uh, rabbinical schools of thought. Uh, one is Shammai, the followers of Shammai, and the others are the followers of the house of Hillel. And this is from Gatim uh, 9.10, which is part of the Mishnah. And this is, lays out the debate. The house of Shammai says a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity. So Shammai's the conservative, but but... Jesus is going to take a position close to Shammai's, but Shammai said, like the Roman and Greek, uh, Roman and Greek culture at the time, if there was uh, sexual immorality, then that necessitated divorce. Jesus is not going to go uh, go along with that. Jesus will go along that there's a possible exception if there's sexual immorality, but there's not a mandate. To divorce, we'll see that a little bit. So Shammai said, "You have to divorce in the case of sexual immorality," and bases that base that on Deuteronomy 24:1. And then under C, there we read, "And the house of Philel says, even if she spoils his dish, if she burns the toast, if she overcooks the oatmeal, if she burns the egg, um, if she talks too loud, uh, any case like that, then it's okay. It's a rather loose." Uh, loose term. In Ketuvah 7.6, uh, their reasons for divorce are listed, as I stated this last week, giving a husband untithed food or uttering a vow and not fulfilling it. If the wife goes out in public with her hair unbound or if she speaks with any man in public, those would all be legitimate reasons for divorce, according to the school of Hillel. Very, very loose, sort of like we have in our culture today, that if you're just not getting along, 
then God doesn't want there to be discord in the home. God is a God of peace, so go ahead and get divorced and find somebody you can live with in peace. Remember, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. It still needs to be cut, and it's still corrupted by the sin nature. The focal point of Jesus' teaching is to elevate the priority of marriage in uh, their eyes. I pointed out last time that another part of the issue that comes up is marriage is a covenant, but is it is it an unbreakable covenant? You'll find some folks who teach that. But Jesus clearly recognized that when a divorce occurs, that ends the marriage. And that's seen in his conversation with the woman at the well when he made the comment that you have well said in verse 17 that you have no husband. If those prior five divorces had not been legitimate, had, had bro- not broken the covenant of marriage, Jesus would have said you still have five husbands. But he says, you have no husband now. You've had past tense five husbands. So he recognizes that the covenant can be, uh, can be broken. So Jesus returns the focus to the scripture in verse four. This is the real issue. Instead of going to the Deuteronomy 24 exception, he says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And then verse 5 says, And for this reason, this is from Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the biblical foundation for marriage. It is entering into a marriage covenant before God between two people who are basically swearing an oath before God that they will become one flesh. And the sexual union is basically the mark of the covenant. We've studied biblical covenants before, that the sign of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision, the sign of the Mosaic covenant is uh, is the Sabbath. So the sign, the mark of the marriage covenant is the sexual relationship. So marriage is a covenant that is... Uh, sealed before God, and we looked at passages like Malachi 2.14, which states in the middle there, uh, it's between you and the wife of you, your youth with whom you have dwelt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the scripture clearly recognizes that this is a covenant, that these two words, leave and cleave, are words that are often used in scripture to emphasize loyalty, and this is the idea here, that, that if we want to get this point, when a man and a woman join together in marriage, when the leaving of the parents is a sign of a transfer of loyalty that is now sanctioned by covenant. So their loyalty is no longer to parents, but their loyalty is now to one another. And this is sealed in this marriage vow and this marriage covenant, that they are, their loyalty is toward one another. Now, the one emphasis that we're going to see on this is that when sexual immorality occurs, that is a violation of that loyalty agreement that is part of the marriage covenant. And I want you to remember that because we'll come back to it 
uh, a little later on as we look at uh, one or two other things. But this is at the essence of of the marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that sexual infidelity uh, ends the marriage. It just means it is a violation of that loyalty oath that's part of being a covenant. So that where this comes out later on is that we will see that when Israel violates their covenant with God, what does God call it? He calls it adultery. The core value, the core semantic value of that term for adultery is not sexual inherently. It is a violation of a loyalty oath. Okay, just keep that in mind for right now. Okay, so our conclusion last time was, first of all, that marriage is a covenant before God by a man and a woman. As such, it results in a union that should not be broken. Doesn't mean it cannot be broken, but it should not be broken. When Jesus said, let no man uh, break this oath, it's, a, it's an imperative. If it was an indicative, it would mean it can't. It's a statement of reality, but it's an imperative that it should not. Because that's the high standard. That's what sets Jesus' answer apart from that of given by either side in the rabbinical debate. And then third, I said that though there, though exceptions will be stated and the marriage uh, covenant can be broken, Jesus is saying it should not be broken and that Genesis 2 means that the Shammai view, which mandated a divorce, and the cultural view, the Greco-Roman view, that in the case of adultery, divorce was mandatory, that even in the case of a possible legitimate reasons for divorce, everything should be done to prevent that. However, we all know in reality that there are marriages where one person just says, that's it, I'm out of here, and there's nothing the other person can do about it. So two people are needed to make it work, but one person can end the whole thing. So then, moving on, verse 7, the Pharisees then said to Jesus, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Anybody see the problem with that question? The text did not say that they had to put her away. See, that's Shammai's interpretation. They're misinterpreting Deuteronomy 24.1. Deuteronomy 24.1, as we'll see in just a second, doesn't mandate a divorce. It just recognizes certain circumstances where a divorce could take place. So this this shows that they are misinterpreting the text. The text isn't saying that just because a legitimate basis exists that you should end the marriage. Deuteronomy 24.1, let's take a look at this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Now, there is a plethora of interpretations as to what that some uncleanness is. And that was the issue that Jesus was dealing with here. And whatever that is, it doesn't matter. It's not germane to what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter chapter 19, number one. And number two, all, this passage is not prescribing divorce. It's not even talking about what makes a divorce legitimate or not. 
the very at, at the very least, without getting into the weeds on what the sum uncleanness is, what this is simply saying is when this happens, and it's recognizing that the divorce that occurs here, that he writes her a certificate of divorce, that that is recognizing that that for what whatever the sum uncleanness is, and it's an ambiguous term, that that recognizes this as a legitimate divorce. So you've got a man married to a woman, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and it's it's legitimate. He goes on from there. He puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house. Now, one question that came up last week that often comes up is, it just seems like all these passages tend to focus on the man having the, the, the priority in determining whether or not the marriage is going to make it or not. He's the one who writes the certificate of divorce. Doesn't the woman have anything to say about this? And, of course, what you have is a lot of people who say, see, this just shows the scriptures are uh, misogynistic and all of this other nonsense because nobody wants to compare scripture with scripture and really talk about the fact that God has a very high view of the role of women. It's just not the low view of women that modern feminists have adopted. Uh, in Exodus 21.7, and we sort of have to understand the context because verses 10 and 11 are the passages I want to look at, but it's talking about a situation where a man sells his daughter to be a female slave. Once again, the liberals and the people who don't understand the Bible and don't want to think beyond the end of their nose say, see, the Bible is so bad, it's got this awful ethic, it, it, it validates slavery. It's not validating slavery. It's recognizing, like with polygamy, that this is part of the culture and God is regulating it in order to protect those who were slaves. And incidentally, under the guidance of, of Exodus, the, the kind of slavery they had wasn't a race-based slavery like we had, a chattel slavery like we had in the U.S. The kind of slavery they had was a an indentured servitude so that when the sabbatical year came around every seventh year the slaves were set the servants were set free if they unless they wanted to voluntarily stay in a position of servitude it wasn't chattel sl- slavery but every but people want to read that into it and they always attack the bible this way see the bible rec- the bible legitimizes polygamy and or uh, pol- polygyny which is multiple wives. Uh, the Bible also recognized slavery, and that's not, it just, it's, it's recognizing this is what's the situation that occurs in the culture, and God's going to regulate the circumstances, and that's what's happening in Deuteronomy 24, to protect the woman and to protect and make sure that, that she's not going to be taken advantage of and to protect the slave. So a man sells his daughter to be a female slave. She shall not go out as a male slave does. And if she doesn't please her master who has betrothed himself to her, so the situation is she gets sold as a slave and the new master says, I want to marry her. And so they enter into a betrothal and, and that's set up in those three verses. But here's the point that we want to look at. After a while, he's made her his wife. Now he takes another wife. And what's going to happen to the first wife? She's often just going, okay, you're, you're, you're second-class citizen now. This is to protect her and her rights as a wife, okay? If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish 
the first wife's food, clothing, and her marriage rights, her marital rights uh, sexually in the union. Uh, Exodus 20.11, And if he does not do these three things for her, then she shall go free. See, she's got a claim against him that if you don't take care of me according to these three areas, then that ends our marriage and she's protected. That's a legitimate basis for divorce that she hasn't taken care of him. This passage is often overlooked in, in the whole uh, marriage and divorce, uh, divorce discussion. Now, what's interesting is what applies here is what's called an a fortiori argument. She's a slave. Now, if this applies to a slave, it would apply even more in a situation where the wife, the first wife, is a free woman. And as a free woman, she would have certainly have more rights than a slave would. So if this applies to the slave that's been betrothed to the, to the man, it applies even more to a free woman who was married. And then he takes a second wife that her rights are protected in this situation by God. So yes, God does have, there are provisions in there that look at the provision from the viewpoint of the woman and in protecting her. Now another passage that comes up that is germane to what we see in Deuteronomy 24 is in Malachi chapter 2 verse 16. Now, uh, let's, let me go to Deuteronomy 24. I want to read something to you first before we look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 2 and following gives us the rest of the situation. See, verse 1 is just the beginning. You have the man who finds no favor with his wife. He writes her a certificate of divorce that is treated by this passage as legitimate. And she leaves his house, verse 2, and she goes and she becomes another man's wife. So she enters into another marriage. There's nothing said about that being wrong. It's a legitimate divorce. She goes and she remarries. And then in verse 3 says, if the latter husband detests her, that's the King James Version. The Hebrew is if he hates her. That's the most uh, basic. If he hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, the point here is that's considered an illegitimate divorce. The first husband has a cause for divorcing her. He's found some um, some uncleanness in her. But the second husband just hates her. And this is aversion. He just and that's never accepted as a legitimate basis for divorce in the scripture. That you you don't like your spouse anymore, then you need to have an attitude correction and straighten things out, and that's not the result. That's not done with divorce. Aversion is never a legitimate basis uh, for divorce in the Scripture. Now, the reason I point that out is you have this combination of terms: hate, the Hebrew word sane, and divorce. In another critical passage, actually, it's in a couple of other different places, but this is in Malachi two sixteen. Now, Malachi 2.16 is often quoted when people are talking about divorce, and they quote it from the translation that you find in a lot of English translations. And they'll just quote the key phrase, well, God hates divorce, as if that is the final, ultimate, overriding principle. The problem is the Hebrew is ambiguous, and that's not 
the best translation, though it is the most common translation. Malachi 2.16 in the NKJV says, For the Lord God of Israel says that, there's no that in the Hebrew, that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. It's, it's self-destructive is what that is saying. Now, the second quote there is from the New American Standard. I didn't get that put on the slide. That's from the New American Standard where it's translated for I hate divorce. See, the first translation, New King James, New King James, he hates divorce is more accurate than he hates because it's a third person singular verb. He hates. It's not a first person singular verb. I hate. But because of the difficulty of the Hebrew construction, there are uh, there are those who take the view that this ought to be re- the, the the verb ought to be repointed in terms of the vowels, and it ought to be a first person singular. Uh, it's not that the the, the Hebrew is, is is a third person. He hates. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord. Um, so he's hating two things, divorce and the one who covers his garment with wrong. The ESV, which is a fairly recent translation, I think is more accurate at this point, and there have been a couple of very technical uh, monographs and dissertations written on this in recent, in the last 20 or 30 years that support this translation. For the man who does not love his wife, literally the text says for he who hates his wife, and divorces her. The end isn't there. For he who hates his wife, divorces her, says the Lord, uh, covers his garment with violence. Now that's a much different sense than saying he hates divorce or God hates divorce or I hate divorce, says the Lord. And I, but I think this is much more accurate. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. It's a recognition that hating your spouse is not a legitimate reason or not liking them is not a legitimate basis for divorce, and it's self-destructive. You cover your garment with violence. This follows the Septuagint translation and a number of other ancient translations which also translate the same way, if while hating... You dismiss your wife, says the Lord God of Israel. You will conceal the wrongdoing of your thoughts. That's the the Septuagint. So this is a a legitimate translation. I think it makes much better sense, both grammatically as well as contextually. God is not um, saying anything other than if you hate and divorce. And there's a number of other... Uh, passages here. Remember the Deuteronomy 24.3 is the passage we're looking at. The latter husband detests or hates his wife and uh, writes her a certificate of divorce is recognizing that's not a legitimate basis uh, basis for divorce. There's a number of passages, uh, not just the ones that I'm listing here, but there's a number of other passages. Uh, Deuteronomy 21.15, Deuteronomy 21.16 and 17, Deuteronomy 22.3 that talk about a situation where, and it's usually translated unloved. For example, in Deuteronomy 21.15, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved. doesn't say unloved in the Hebrew. It's sane. It says one loved and one hated. Deuteronomy 21.16 uses the loved wife in preference to the son of the hated wife. 
And so that's that's how this is, is translated in a number of passages. And this was a common recognition. God is recognizing this is not a legitimate basis uh, for divorce. Hate, in some contexts, does refer to an unjustified divorce, where the the aversion or hatred or the fact that you just can't stand the side of that person anymore uh, is not a legitimate basis uh, for divorce. So Jesus answers the Pharisees, and he says to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wife. Notice how he changed the terms. They said, Moses commanded us. And he said, no, 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 get it right. Go back, look at your text. Remember the first principle in Bible study methods is observation. Doesn't say command. He, he just allows, he recognizes and allows it, but it's not mandated. From the beginning, it was not so. In other words, God created and instituted marriage so that a man and a woman would come together and stay together. He didn't institute marriage so that they would not stay together. The ideal is for man and woman to stay together in marriage. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Now, that's the important exception clause. And in the Greek, it's the uh, two words, may appear, and it is always used to state an exception, to state a, a clear, legitimate exception to anything. So this is a clear exception. But it's not the only exception. Paul is going to bring in another exception in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that is when uh, the spouse is an unbeliever and the spouse departs. But in both passages, the writers, I mean, Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 are answering specific questions. They are not giving an exhaustive answer. They are not saying this is the complete doctrine of marriage and divorce. They are addressing specific and answering specific questions. But in answering those questions, just like case law in the Old Testament, they do stake out certain boundaries and certain parameters for, uh, for, for the answer and for the doctrine. So Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and this is the Greek word porneia from which we get our word pornography, and it is a word that re- would refer to I- any sort of I- sexual activity that violates the, co- the marriage covenant. So this would involve uh, homosexual relationships, it would involve incest, bestiality. In the ancient world, it would involve going to the temple and having uh, sexual relations with the temple prostitutes. It would cover all, it, all or any of that. That is because that is a violation of this covenant oath that is taken in the marriage contract. Now, Jesus is saying that this is a legitimate reason, but it doesn't necessitate divorce. He goes on to say, if you do this and you marry another, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. Now, some people have said, some people have thought that this means that, well, does that mean that if you didn't have a legitimate basis that that you're just in a continuous state of adultery? 
I think here we have to go back to that core semantic value of adultery as a violation of the covenant. And so what this is, Jesus is saying is whoever divorces his wife except for uh, immorality, sexual immorality, and marries another violates the covenant, violates that marriage covenant from the beginning. And whoever marries her who is divorced, and there would, the exception clause would be assumed to be true there, commits, a, breaches that marriage covenant. Jeremiah 3, 8 is just one of numerous verses I could go to from the prophets in the Old Testament where adultery is used to describe that breach of a covenant. Uh, God says, uh, then I saw that, uh, or Jeremiah speaking, then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away, or rather God is speaking, then I saw, God says, I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery. This is not literal adultery. This is a violation of the Mosaic covenant. Uh, They had committed covenant violations. I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear but went and played the harlot also. So this is the the core value of, of adultery when it comes to this passage, that if you put off you divorce a spouse for the wrong reason, then you cause them to breach the covenant, the marriage covenant. Uh, Matthew 19, the disciples understood this, that Jesus is saying something that's much tougher than either the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel. Because what Jesus is saying is that that we had these exceptions, or we had this in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, but we're entering into the church age, and there's a higher standard for marriage. That's Ephesians 5. And the higher standard for marriage is that you do whatever it takes to work it out. Now, does that mean you're always going to be able to work it out? No, unfortunately it doesn't, because you might be married to someone who just doesn't want to work it out, who says, hasta la vista, baby, I'm out of here, and that's and you can't do anything else about it. Or they may be involved, I think it's also legitimate, in criminal activity and maybe criminal activity in terms of physical abuse and assault. And I think that is also a legitimate basis for, um, for, for divorce. That doesn't mean that you automatically jump there. You do everything you can to try to make it work. Because that's the high standard. And there are numerous examples. Some of us think that, boy, if I was married to somebody and they did X, Y, or Z, I just couldn't go forward. Well, I could probably give you about 10 or 20 anecdotes of of Christian marriages where they felt that way too, but in the grace of God and by the grace of God, they were able to overcome. And the testimonies that they have later on, now it takes a while, 10, 20, 30 years later, it's just remarkable, and it's a great uh, sense of hope that that gives everyone, that we're married to lousy sinners, and even if they do horrible things, if they're willing to submit to the grace of God and let the Holy Spirit transform them, then we are to forgive them. And this is what the disciples say, man, that's hard. That's right. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. 
You can't do it unless you're walking by the Holy Spirit. How many times have you heard me say that? And that applies to these areas. They're deeply personal, and they're deep, they can be deeply painful. But God in his grace is the God of healing and the God of forgiveness and the God of restoration. So his disciples say this is the case of the man with his wife. It's better not to marry. Yes, getting married is an extremely serious decision. And it should be entered into very carefully. You don't just jump into it. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. There's some people, you know, you, you may be young as a believer, you may be young in life, and you just can't handle it. There's, there's grace. But Jesus says they're eunuchs. A eunuch is someone who has been a technically emasculated, no longer capable of sexual activity. For their eunuchs who are born that way, they just have no libido, no sexual desire whatsoever from birth. They're eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. This was the case in the ancient world, that if you were a slave in charge of the harem, then you were emasculated so you wouldn't be tempted. Uh, they're eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and they're eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. They have willingly adopted celibacy, that is, for the kingdom of heaven's sake, in order to pursue uh, pursue ministry. Paul talks about that in First Corinthians chapter seven. Jesus said, "He who is able to accept it, let him accept it." Now, the bottom line that what makes marriage work is forgiveness. Whatever the degree, whatever the problems. We have to forgive one another. This goes back to the context of Matthew 18. Peter said, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Forgiveness is a corollary to love. Love is a decision that we make based upon our relationship with the Lord. It's not an emotion. It's a decision that we are going to love somebody. That means we are going to honor the covenant that we make before God, and we're going to be faithful to that, even if the other person isn't, and we're going to forgive them so that we can move forward. And that is genuine biblical love, and you can't do it on your own. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the first thing he lists? Love. It's a fruit of the Spirit. You can't just manufacture it on your own. It's got to be part of your spiritual life and the fruit of the Spirit. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to reflect upon your grace and forgiveness, understand how it applies to the most intimate relationship that we have in terms of our marriage and an area where often there is a tremendous amount of of pain and suffering uh, due to the sin natures involved. And, Father, we know that there is redemption, recovery, forgiveness in everything because of your grace. Father, the Lord sets forth a high standard. The institution of marriage is not just a, an option. It is something that is essential for the survival of cultures, the survival of a nation, and uh, for our own personal benefit, instituted before sin ever casts its shadow on the creation. And yet, Father, we know that because of sin, we often fall short. But give us the grace to focus on the truth of your word. Give us the grace and the strength to forgive, 
and give us the grace and the strength to reflect your grace in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here listening to this message that that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, never recognized the the extent of grace in our own lives in terms of the salvation, that they would understand this, that, that none of us are worthy, none of us can ever be worthy, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you, in your grace, forgave us of all the hostility, all the anger, all the rebellion against you when you put all of our sin on Jesus Christ on the cross so that the issue is no longer what do we do, but what do we think about Jesus? Are we trusting in him and him alone for salvation, or are we trying to earn our way to heaven? And Scripture is very clear that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to your mercy that you save us. And, Father, we pray that anyone who has never trusted in Christ would take this opportunity to do so. And the instant that you believe that Jesus died and paid the penalty for your sins, at that instant you have eternal life, which can never be taken from you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.